Good afternoon, and welcome to Taking a Holistic Approach to Your Connected Devices Security, a Health System CIO Media Inc. production sponsored by Armis. Just a little housekeeping before we get started. My name is Anthony Guerra. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Health System CIO, and I'll be your moderator today. We're looking forward to your participation. You can send in your questions or comments in the Q&A box, and we'll take those later in the program. Just so you see how we're going to spend our time today, we're going to go about 35, 40 minutes with our main panel discussion featuring Renee Broadbent, CIO at Southern New England Healthcare, Christopher Friends, CISO and AVP of IT Security at Mount Sinai South Nassau, and Mo Wakas, Principal Solutions Architect for Global Healthcare with Armis. And then we will have our Q&A. So let's jump right in. Um, Renee, let's start with you. Can you give us an overview of your organization and your role? Absolutely. Um, my name is Renee Broadbent, and I am the Chief Information Officer as well as the Information Security Officer for Southern New England Healthcare Organization, otherwise known as Stone Healthcare. Um, we are called a Clinically Integrated Network, or SIN, um, and so we cover areas in Connecticut and Massachusetts. And what that means is we have a large management um, of population um, health folks. Um, so we have about 17 different contracts that we have with different payers, um, Medicare Advance, SSP, and we have about 200,000 lives under management. So, and we are affiliated with Trinity um, Health of New England. Um, they are part owner of our clinically integrated ne network with our physicians owning the other 50%. In my role there, I responsible for all of the data um, that comes into our organization, um, the dissemination and medical economics of that data, um, and then also, and most importantly, all the security of that particular data, as well as everybody who connects into us. So it's a pretty broad network, um, and I'm happy to be here today with my colleagues to share how we can, uh, our, our best ideas about how to protect all that. Very good. Thank you so much, Renee. Chris? I'm Chris Friends. I'm the AVP of IT Security for Mount Sinai South Nassau, which is a hospital system based in Long Island, New York. Excellent, Chris. Thank you. Mo? Uh, hey, everybody. Mo here. I'm the Principal Solutions Architect for Armis. Uh, I lead the Global Healthcare Division at Armis. We're an industry-leading medical device security platform. Uh, prior to Armis, I spent about a decade building an information security and privacy program for a hospital uh, from the ground up. So everything from bringing in technologies dealing with ransomware attacks, uh, governance, and maturing the program. So really excited to be here for this conversation. Excellent. All right. Let's jump right in. Um, Renee, we're going to start with you. Talk about the breadth of devices, both clinical and non-clinical, that could be connected to a health systems network. Do you think that some of these, even though they represent attack vectors, are being overlooked by security professionals? Yeah, so there's lots of different devices in my role. So, you know, we have my health system colleagues spend a lot of time with the medical devices, right, that they have to connect. I have to worry about all the other people <laughs> that are connecting into our system and the devices that they um, actually uh, might be connecting to. So, I mean, it could be a medical device. It could be a wearable. It could be their cell phone. It could be laptops. I mean, there there's any number of devices that could attach into the network. Um, and, and even though I, I think that there are a number of things Things out there that security professionals potentially can overlook. And the reason is, is because I think the universe is becoming more diverse about what in, right? I think things are easier to get access to. And one of the things that, you know, we 
struggle with or continually stay on top of is really keeping that inventory, like who is trying to get in, right? Who needs access and how do we, we protect that? Um, and so I think that, um, you know, one of the things also mindful of is how, how to maintain control or get a handle on what those devices are going to be and how, how that changes constantly. Um, you know, we're focused, we're focused right now, um, on a digital strategy, which opens up the door to a whole bunch of other devices um, and, and things that connect your network. And so that's something we'll be grappling with. And this ties right into that, right? Um, what is out there? What is the universe? Um, and is it possible that we're missing um, missing things? <clears throat> and Renee, as you're saying, it's not just a one-time snapshot inventory. It's, it's maintaining um, accurate inventory on something that's constantly changing, correct? Yes. You know, and I'll, I'll tell you this, I, I, IT, confessions of an IT person, right? Everybody hates doing inventory. It's like the bane of your existence. However, um, you know, it is it's becoming more and more important. It's not just like, hey, how many pictures do you have, you know, and, and where are they? It's really like, what, what are what is everything? What is the universe that's out there? And how do you proactively look at that? And what, what we do is we have a very structured um, security program in place, both internally, we par partner with compliance. And that, that, that inventory piece is a part of it. And we have a cadence in that we follow to make sure that we're one, it's always current, but two, what's coming up on the horizon and what we need to look at and look for and put in place to do that. Very good. Um, Chris, your thoughts? I don't disagree. Asset inventory is always a challenge as someone who's um, done zero trust within two hospital systems now. Uh, asset inventory is always challenge number one for, for going down that pathway. I would just add a couple of other categories of devices too, because it was already mentioned um, clinical devices, a lot of your typical non-clinical devices like PCs and printers. But I think what's also important in healthcare setting that's commonly overlooked is a lot of the operational technology devices. Uh, because if you consider things like um, not just HVAC um, type controls, but even things like pressure sensors in an isolation room, uh, that can have a huge impact on patient care if those begin to fail. Uh, same thing with like humidity sensors in operating rooms. If the humidity gets uh, too high or too low, it can increase the rate of infection. So there's lots of things that are not traditionally classified as a medical device that still have huge impacts on patient care. And I think a lot of times um, we don't give enough attention to those within healthcare security. Excellent point. Mo, your thoughts? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I'm going to be a bit of an echo here, but uh, absolutely. When I'm when I'm talking to a number of different executives across uh, healthcare organizations, what I love hearing is the fact that now medical device security, connected care security is starting to become part of that strategy. When you're looking at a cybersecurity framework like NIST, it's talking about assets, it's talking about business systems. And what we're starting to see is healthcare organizations expand that scope, that it no longer stops at a client server. It's also the peripherals that are connected, right? The wearables, the telemetry, the IOMT devices. I love, Chris, that you brought up uh, OT and building management systems, because while there's a lot of consideration for the medical devices, uh, what we're having a lot of conversations for uh, with healthcare organizations is they have a really diverse device ecosystem, right? Point being those facility devices, the HVAC units, the IP cameras, the parking sensors, and so on. So a lot of times the patient will interact with eight to 10 different types of devices before they even touch a single medical device. I think the other challenge where security teams uh, might overlook certain devices, it also comes down to the context of how the devices are being used. With IOMT, with vendors evolving that medical device uh, profile, if you will, to leverage iPads, 
as ultrasound units, right? By attaching peripherals and things of that nature, it's more important now than ever to understand that this is not simply an iPad on the network, but it's an iPad that's being used in the context of clinical care. So these shouldn't be moved off onto a BYOD uh, network. They should rather be on the biomed network. So those are the types of trends that I'm seeing. And I think it's creating a problem for security teams because now they're starting to be tasked with securing uh, unknown devices uh, or that they don't understand the workflow of and traditional security tools that might be IP-based and really based on the operating system and Mac, they tend to struggle with real identification of the devices. Mo, let me ask you something. You know, we have uh, medical devices that are um, overseen by the FDA, right? Mm -hmm. And then we have, let's say, all the other stuff that doesn't go through the FDA. One of the issues with medical devices is uh, you can't really patch them unless, you know, the the vendor says it's okay because, you know, you take on a whole bunch of liability. We don't have that same issue with the non-medical devices. Therefore, they're more patchable. Does that make sense? Or I don't know if the vendors are coming up with patches as quickly as need be, but you don't have the same issue when you take the FDA out of it, correct? Yeah, you don't necessarily have the same impact, I'll say, where it's uh, impacting patients, patient safety and things of that nature. Um, But on the flip side is that vendors do have certification for OT devices as well. Right, but on uh, on the in terms of the impact, it's if that goes down, uh, it's not as uh, deep of an impact as being directly connected to a patient. But to Chris's point, there's a lot of ancillary healthcare services and connected to that delivery model that it'll impact. So we're seeing a similar level of um, of of patching restrictions on these OT devices that healthcare systems and generally uh, the industry across the globe is trying to navigate. Uh, and we're seeing a lot more strides in you know vendors that are releasing. Uh, not only security advisories when it comes to these patches, but also understanding that because these are, you know, sort of these vulnerabilities are found on legacy OSs that are no longer being patched, here's mitigations and here's workarounds that they're also starting to provide for both the OT side of the house and the IOMT side of the house. Very good. All right, Chris, we're going to start with you on this. Um, And we talked a little bit about is obtaining an inventory of network connected devices a crucial first step in getting one's arm around this challenge? And is this more difficult than it should be and why? I think it's definitely a challenge. And I do think it's an important first step. If you look at things like the CIS, um, you know, top uh, controls, asset inventory is always control number one. So I think in order to protect the stuff on your network, you first need to know what's on the network. But one of the challenges Mm -hmm. around it is if you have, let's say, um, 10 different tools deployed, you might get a different asset count from each tool. There's not always agreement. Uh, Certain tools may see things uh, others don't. So taking the time to correlate all that data, figure out what's what, um, it's not necessarily the easiest process in the world, but it, it's critical to know what's on your network, um, particularly with a lot of the zero trust efforts I've done, because the challenge number one is always to figure out what assets are on the network. So then you can go to the next step and figure out how all those different assets talk to each other and map out all the different traffic flows on your network. And I think both exercises are of critical importance uh, because even if you don't um, ever go down the road of zero trust, if you know what kind of traffic flows are supposed to be on your network, it makes it significantly easier to identify any traffic flow that shouldn't be on the network. So from both an instant identification, instant response perspective, uh, it makes a lot of stuff a lot easier. So in my opinion, it's definitely a key security control to figure out what's on the network and a, a very, very worthwhile exercise to do. Chris, why would different tools be giving you different counts? What are some reasons that happens? Uh, I mean, a lot of cases because you might have um, different visibility. So, or for example, you occasionally say you're pulling numbers from, let's say, an antivirus type product. 
maybe the agent uh, failed or isn't working on a couple of um, you know PCs. So that gives you a different counts, and you know, over time that leads to discrepancies in tools, or there's the possibility that you forgot to install, let's say, one particular tool or agent on um, a set of PCs in your organization, and it's um, it's easy easy to I guess know what's known, but not knowing what you don't know or for finding that out is kind of the the hard part. And um, a lot of that plays into coming up with a complete asset inventory because you don't know what you don't know. And and do you like having multiple tools so you're getting different counts? If you just had one tool, uh, would that concern you? Or what are your thoughts around that? I, I do think it's always worth having um, you know multiple tools to pull data from for asset inventory purposes because you'll get a more complete picture. Um, mm-hmm. You'll often find different tools, see different things. And by correlating the data, you can discover um, devices on your network that might not have been there. Because uh, you know, reality is, is uh, no tool is perfect. A lot of tools are very good, but I've never found any tool that 100% does everything perfectly. Mo, um, what are your thoughts around uh, inventory? And and again, there's a couple issues here. It's 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 the idea of different counts. Um, so that's one issue. Um, and then it's sort of maintaining an inventory. It's not just a one-time snapshot. It's sort of getting something real time where you're seeing things coming off and onto the network. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think if I if I kind of uh, put on my previous security practitioner hat at the hospital, uh, two two examples come to mind is whenever there was a zero day patch um, or zero day vulnerability identified or something related to a ransomware campaign, uh, even to uh, probe enterprise devices, we're waiting for 30, 45, even two hours for additional devices to come online to be able to pull them. So in that time, we're still exposed to this massive ransomware campaign that's happening around the world. On the flip side, when it came to medical devices, uh, we had to rely on the biomedical and clinical engineering teams asking them, can you give us uh, information on medical devices? Now, what did that result in? It took them about a week to do a complete site survey of all the different devices. And to Chris's point, this is what they knew about, right? This is perhaps what the departments informed them of or they had directly purchased. But when that information came back, the information wasn't aligned with what security teams needed. So there's also a gap in the different information that different teams need and different tools provide. I think one of the other challenges is uh, 10, 20 years ago, uh, what have you, a lot of the, if not all of the IT purchasing or connected device purchasing was happening through the IT department, your laptops, desktop servers, things of that nature. What's happened now is IoT devices, IOMT devices come in and we were on the receiving end where we're just getting calls from clinicians saying, hey, I have these 20 new glucometers that I've purchased. I need to connect them to the Wi-Fi. So what's the Wi-Fi password, right? And that's how uh, teams are getting notified in terms of there's new devices on my network only because they needed some type of password that they didn't know about. Otherwise, the and that's the trick here, and that's the challenge, is that that blind spot is continuously growing, right? How do you know that you've reached 100% visibility if you're not in charge of all the purchasing? That's a lot of the conversations that we're we're starting to see and the trends that we're seeing is, you might be really good at the assets you manage and you've purchased, but nobody can say with definitively information about assets that they don't have, that facilities is purchasing, that biomeds purchasing, diagnostic imaging is per- purchasing, and so on. And Mo, when when finally the CISO or the CIO gets that call and says, oh, you know what? I think I better take a look at this device you've purchased that you're putting on their network. And they finally get to look at it. They may say, this thing is a horror show. Right. Mm-hmm. I don't want this anywhere near my network. And they would have never known about it if they hadn't gotten that call or if ultimately they didn't have a tool that popped up that there's 15 new devices on your network. And what are these? 
right? Yeah. I mean, is that how it plays out on the ground? Yeah, exactly. That That's one of the challenges with healthcare is really shifting over from a reactive state to a proactive state. And I think that's some of the challenges with security teams uh, is that they might be being pulled in you know, when there's a change being approved for a go live project that they had absolutely no involvement in that that uh, covered implementing these medical devices, implementing new innovative technologies, right? Uh, Renee mentioned going digital, even having cloud footprints. And at that point, security is kind of coming along and saying, well, we have no idea about this. Mm -hmm. uh, we need to do our appropriate risk assessment. And that creates delays in, you know, innovating that patient care. So, that's one of the challenges and one of the key, I think, to really getting proactive in securing hospitals, reducing attack service and enabling innovation is to enable healthcare systems to take a much more proactive approach uh, to security. Renee, wherever you want to jump in, there's lots of stuff. Yeah, no, no, no. You know, there isn't anything that, um, you know, my colleagues have said, Chris or Mo, that, you know, isn't a, a top of the mind. And just, you know, speaking to about going back, you know, the hospital. The centralized purchasing thing, huge, right? I can tell you how many projects I got called on. I'm like, hey, we just spent a million dollars on X and we need access to the network, right? Don't know if it's compatible. Don't know if it's secure. And, and you know, you, you, see, you saw a lot of that. So an advantage I have is I'm in a bit, a little bit of a smaller footprint for security. So I can control the purchases, right? I can control the access to certain things until I get out to my and each of my network practices might be implementing something else, like remote patient monitoring that then wants to do an interface into something, right? And no, I just, I'm just agreeing with both Chris and Mo, you know, just saying, you know, it, it, you have to really just use multiple tools to, to kind of go get your stuff and really understand that inventory. And, you know, it's a constant, you know, it, it's a constant, you know, looking proactively so that you make sure you're completely covered. Very good. All right, um, let's go to our next question. Um, and Mo, we're going to start with you. From a technical point of view, how can security teams be alerted each time a new device is connected to the network? So nobody called you and asked you for a password. Uh, people are purchasing things all over the health system. Um, you you want to know about that as the, the security leader. Um, how can they be notified? And Chris, Chris alluded to this before in terms of traffic but specifically when a device starts behaving in a way inconsistent with what it should be doing. So from a technical point of view, um, how's that work? Yeah, absolutely. And and some of this is, is uh, talking about the ARMS platform a little bit, but I think at the foundation of it is, uh, to your point, exactly what you had mentioned, it can't be uh, a snapshot in time, right? So a scan at Friday, 3 p.m., it's not going to give you uh, the real-time view or the complete view into your environment. And a simple example of that is if you're doing um, scans at Friday noon, let's say, uh, some of the users are gonna either take half day, they've logged off they for their lunch break and so on. Now that these devices are offline, you're not gonna be able to uh, ping that IP and get a response or understand what device has that IP today. So at the foundation of the of the from a technical perspective, you're going to need a tool that does uh, completely real time discovery. And to Chris's point, this is going to be based on the traffic, right? When that device gets added on, it's reaching out to network infrastructure to grab some network information, like having IP assigned. Even that part alone can give you visibility in terms of how many devices do I even have on my network, right? Uh, the other part is given the sensitivity and criticality of different types of devices in a healthcare e ecosystem. 
your medical devices, bedside monitors, ER devices, uh, facilities devices, devices that are running proprietary operating systems or can't have agents installed, uh, there needs to be a passive approach to it. So that aggressive um, or active probing of devices, knocking on their door saying, hey, what kind of device are you? Give me more information about yourself. That's detrimental, I would say, for a healthcare organization. Um, just, you know, one uh, battle scar I've had is even doing a scan of like an inter interface bus. So even though it's running a Microsoft platform and what have you, um, if they're getting packets on ports that they're expecting specifically crafted messages from HIS systems or from protocols from medical devices, that can just hang the entire system because they're not sure how to process these packets or process any of this. That's why the active scanning component is fairly uh, critical to make sure that it's, it's more of a passive approach as devices are being added. That's where uh, it's gonna be a continuous update. Hey, I detected new traffic from a new device. The uh, alerting mechanism now, it's, I think the healthcare organization is also facing um, alert fatigue. So you want to also make yep. sure that from an alerting perspective, even setting the parameters in terms of what do I care that I want to be alerted on? Do I have different zones or boundaries or network segments set up that I really care about when devices are being added? Uh, if it's a non-medical device being added to my guest network or to being added to a vendor network or things of that nature, or based on specific traffic patterns, I want to be notified. Or if there's a high risk device that's being added, I think that's a key aspect here is security teams, you want to become aware of things that you can action and that you care about uh, to help Renee, keep that alert. Oh, I'm sorry, Mo. Okay, sorry. Go ahead, Renee. And that goes to risk classification, exactly what you're saying about what, what are those devices, right? So there may be things that um, are less risky, um, and then there's other things that you always want to be alerted to, right? So when you talk about non-medical devices, right, there's a lot of different things that can attach to your network that um, people may randomly think that that's okay to, to put those devices on your network. So I think having that risk classification um, identified um, and having a process for when that happens um, in terms of communication and outreach and, and, and having solid policy, policies and procedures that are communicated about what that means kind of mitigates some of that. Sorry. Yeah, Renee, one of the things that I've heard is, especially with certain, uh, you know, limitations in personnel, um, that the alert fatigue is real, especially in IT security. You know, CISOs don't so much want another tool that sends them to investigate things they have no time to investigate. Right. right? So right. it's, it, that's why there's a, you know, managed services can be attractive um, because it's sort of, I don't want to just a tool that tells me about problems. I also want someone to deal with them for me. Uh, yeah. But what are your thoughts yeah. around that? Yeah. So I, I'm a, a perfect example of having a really small department. I have three people that basically work on my infrastructure side. Right. Um, and, and you do get alert fatigue. So, you know, we, we don't use managed services. We actually, you know, remove that, that process. We didn't outsource that anymore. So, um, you know, we're trying to be innovative because we are small um, and but because we, our network is the universe, right? So what we try to do is, is come up with innovative things like, you know, do we have, a, you know, a dashboard alert, you know, and, and, and really kind of bifurcating what, what's important, what's, you know, what's critical, what's not to, to reduce that alert fatigue. Because I don't, I, I don't have the luxury of paying somebody to sit there and just watch something all day long, right, and, and respond to every single alert com coming through. So we do have to stratify that, and we do have certain protocols in place 
um, you know, a benefit that I have is we have a very, um, our network is very contained, um, and a lot of our applications are outsourced, right, to cloud solutions, right? So we have, we have other, you know, we have other tools that we can leverage to help us do that. Chris, what are your thoughts? Uh, you, you, what do you think about alert fatigue? Is it real for security folks? I think alert fatigue can definitely be a, a real thing. Is it's, um, and I think it's important to always take the time to, to tune alerts, to figure out what's critical to your organization. I think a lot of it can be reduced to if you can automate some of the processes too. Like one of the things I'm big yeah. on with a lot of the zero trust approaches is creating uh, device-based profiles. So your, your system automatically recognizes, okay, this is a PC or this is a laptop or a printer and it applies the appropriate policies automatically. So things like that can help reduce a lot of the um, types of things you get. It's also important to consider, as mentioned already um, by uh, Renee's, the risk of the system. I might be more interested in um, unusual traffic going to or from a domain controller than, let's say, a different type of device in my environment just because of the criticality of a domain controller to the environment. And knowing what's important on your network versus what's uh, less important um, definitely reduces the, the, um, the amount of work. Uh, the one thing I will say with the zero trust approach is the more you start to take an approach like that and the more you start to actually lock things down, it actually um, reduces the amount of alerts you get. So one of the things I've experienced is the more we begin to actually lock the network down, the less we find we're triaging, the less uh, incidents we're having, the less fires you're putting out, and that really helps with the alert fatigue. So it becomes kind of a really positive feedback loop because the um, once you start to lock things down, your alerting goes down, which means you can shift security staff to actually locking things down even better, which further reduces your um, alerts and it kind of snowballs from there. Chris, you. Um... You know, this was alluded to by by Mo before on the passive versus active scans, and you've alluded to before about understanding your traffic flows before you go in there and start doing anything. And I think the point is it's sort of in medicine, the idea is do no harm, right? Above all, do no harm. So from a security point of view, Chris, I think your approach is um, figure out what's going on before you go in and start monkeying around, right? So you don't want to break anything. Oh, definitely. Yeah. And, you know, we've used a variety of approaches um, at different organizations. I've used a variety of approaches over the years to figure out traffic flows or anything else before I've applied those policies. Uh, for me, doing any kind of zero trust policy, it's a matter of breaking the environment down. So the approach I've always taken is I've always done a low hanging fruit first, uh, do things like DHCP servers, DNS servers in your environment. Every network engineer knows the ports and protocols. So the odds of missing something um, while applying those policies is pretty small but that lets you learn whatever new tool you're using. So do a low hanging fruit like that first. Um, I've always been big on targeting the workstations and the environment next, uh, largely because workstations tend to be clones of each other. So if you figure out one set of policies that work for um, you know, a workstation, you can usually apply that to a large number of workstations in your environment. Um, so it's a good way to get large coverage within your organization. I'm also big on doing workstations next because if you think about it from a risk perspective, most cyber attacks still happen when somebody clicks on a phishing link or something else. So you're actually isolating and segmenting your biggest risk factor for next. I'm then usually big on doing um, the servers, mostly because that's where the most high value data is. And I usually save the IoT type devices for, for last, mostly because if you're segmenting your workstations and servers properly, you're also indirectly protecting all the IoT because the average desktop should not be talking to, let's say, the infusion pump. So the, the workstation segment policy should kind of indirectly protect a lot of those IoT devices. That's usually the strategy that I follow for segmenting a network. And Chris, just real quick, it, again, from the things you've said and, and the way you describe your work, 
Uh, sounds like you have a philosophy that says, I'm going to do sort of a lot of work up front. I'm going to understand these traffic flows. I'm going to develop these device profiles. This is going to be a lot of work to get started, but I'm going to save myself a tremendous amount of work down the road once I get all this stuff in place. It's a lot of work to get started, but I'm big on that for a couple of reasons. Uh, first reason is I'm very big on doing breach and attack simulation. And having done simulations of ransomware attacks and malware spreading through an organization, one of the things you see quite quickly that without very fine-grained segmentation, an attack can um, spread through your environment really quick. When I did my first uh, ransomware simulation, which was back in 2015, that was at a hospital that had a network that was highly segmented by 2015 standards. It was segmented by department. So traffic from one department could not cross over into another department. And we tested it, that worked really well. But one of the things that really stood out is if we were to lose an entire department, it was still gonna be disastrous hospital operations. We can't not have an emergency room or not have a radiology department without it impacting patient care. And that's kind of what initially got me interested in zero trust. So, so that's one reason I'm big on doing a lot of upfront work like that. The second reason is, is the reality is, is medical devices for the foreseeable future have clinical lifetimes that are gonna long outlive their um, supported operating systems. So, you know, today's brand new medical device, well, the state-of-the-art security features is going to be tomorrow's legacy device. So we might as well put it in place with all the um, proper network segmentation, other compensated controls like DNS syncholing, things like that, to um, leave it protected for the long term. Very good. All right. Next question, Renee, we're going to start with you. So we talked about sort of some technical things from a governance point of view. Yeah. What processes and procedures can security professionals put in place? And we talked about this, things popping up only when you get asked for a password. We don't want that. We want to get ahead of things. So what, from a governance point of view, what can be done so uh, those things get in front of IT security in a timely manner and are reviewed before they pop up on the network? How do you create, and, and part of getting that done is creating a culture where people don't see IT security as a dead end of projects, right? Well, don't bring it over there. They may find out about it later, but if you bring it over there, you're done. You're never going to hear back. We know that people are trying to change that culture. What are your thoughts, Renee? So there's a lot to that question, but um, let me try to break it, break it down how I see it. First of all, I think at a very high level, you need to have a culture of security awareness, right? Um, and you have to, you're, it has to be infused in your culture, right? So that way people are not afraid to talk about security or they take proactive stances when they know they need help from security, right? And it could be as simple as, you know, like if someone gets, you know, I'm happy if someone, you know, gets a phishing message and they send it to me saying, I, I, this came in my mailbox, right? Very, very simple, not related to a device, but starting to create a culture of security that it's okay, we need to be aware, it's not a bad thing, um, but, I'm, but I'm okay with talking to our people in security, asking questions, hey, I'd like to get this device attached to the network. We've, we've gone a long way in doing that. When I first joined the organization, I was resolving a data breach. Um, it's public, so I can say that. But um, and, and in two years, we've put together a, a very strong framework in terms of the culture around security and the importance of it. That's one piece. The second piece is the governance around it, right? So we have a strategic security plan and we have, you know, I'm affiliated with a hospital, so we have a little bit of a structure where um, we have a committee, uh, we have a security committee, we evaluate all these things, we have policies and procedures that deal with it, and then we report up to audit and compliance, right? We have regular audits that come in, external audits. Um, and then, you know, 
refreshing people, having them have training on this. Like, what, what is the importance of letting us know when you want to do this sort of thing, right? You know, and in and, and creating um, that framework so that, you know, people don't, don't feel like they have to wait or they don't have to sneak around and, and get anything for, for lack of a better, um, better thing. We almost never have bog downs in our security. We have, I have a lot of people coming to me with, hey, I want to look at this. I want to look at that. I have a checklist. I'm like, you want this vendor? You want this whatever? Here's the five, six, seven, whatever it is. I have a list. These are the things I need to know. If you don't want to call them, I will, right? Mm-hmm. And so removing that, removing the barrier for them and making it easy and knowing that, you know, we're really looking out for the best interests of the organization, our patients that, and consumers that we serve um, and protecting them in the long run. So um, it takes a lot to do that. A lot of time on governance. We spend a lot of time, you know, having not a lot of meetings, but a regular cadence so that we're reviewing those things and a reporting structure to make sure that, you know, all the pieces that we put in place are endorsed at the highest level. And that's, that's also, that, that'll be my last comment. That's the most important thing in my mind is that you have, you have support as, as far up as you can get it so that it kind of, you know, trickles down to, to everybody else. Yeah. Cause then, then you don't get the end around. Right. You, then you don't get someone who, who just goes above you and and gets th- something signed off on. Right. And so our, our structure is, you know, I report up to audit and compliance, audit and compliance reports up to our board. So when we're endorsing these types of things or rolling out these kinds of things or communicating these types of things, we have now infused that throughout the organization and support at the very highest level. Chris, what are your thoughts? Um, and specifically, I'm thinking around purchasing. Um, do you have a stopgap in purchasing where um, maybe there's a description of basically anything like this needs to be signed off by Chris before purchasing something like your signature has to be on if it meets these criteria. Um, Does that, do you have something like that or, or, you know, what's the, what can the relationship like be between it security and purchasing that'll help you make sure these things don't pop up? On the network, oh, we, we definitely have a third-party risk management um, you know, policies in place that require security assessments. Uh, similar for medical device purchases, we do have an assessment process in place. Um, in terms of uh, you know outside vendors for third parties, we usually tier the risk. So um, we'll rate vendors from a high, medium to low risk. Where a low-risk vendor might be something, let's say, the external affairs department deals with, where it's all public-facing data anyway. So if, if there's a data leak, it's not super critical to the organization because it was designed to be public. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas uh, a high risk vendor was going to be a vendor that deals with PHI or other confidential data for the organization. And we have um, you know, different levels of assessment that we put the organizations through based on which category they fall in. But um, you know, we'll typically, um, we have our security assessment questionnaire. We'll typically ask for uh, third party uh, verifications like SOC 2 reports or um, you know, other types of compliance like that as well as um, pull some scores from some independent scoring agencies about those organizations. And depending on what the results of those um, questions are, you know, we may have follow-up questions or other requests before we do onboard them as a vendor. So there, there's definitely a process like that. On the medical device side, we'll typically ask for things like MDS2 sheets. Uh, we have our own assessment questionnaire, and um, we've been increasingly asking for uh, SBOMs where we can get them. Yeah. Yeah. With those, yeah uh, go ahead, Renee. Add a little bit to that, um, you know, regarding the whole vendor side, we have a security checklist with the vendors that we actually go through and a, a same thing we look for you know um 
socked who's and, you know, you know, if they're a credit card company, you know, all the relevant um, criteria. I think one of the things that has helped, you know, helped us is I'm also high trust certified. So I know exactly as an assessor. So I know exactly, you know, what organizations go through to get that to, in order to protect, um, protect our information. And I think, you know, we go through that process and, and ask for that. The other thing is, and I'd be interested to what Chris and uh, Mo might have, we purchased a software that does real-time risk management, right? So we have our highest risk vendors, right? Our payroll system, and this isn't device specific, but you can put that in there. Um, and um, our system that came protected health information, and it's real-time ma- monitoring the risk. And we get alerts if there's been a breach of credentials, et cetera. Um, so that's one of the other things we're putting in place. And that sort of is proactive so that the users are not necessarily so worried about that and know that we're kind of covering that thing. So. Renee, was that a question? Was that something to run by your co-panelists? No, no, no. Yeah, I mean, just if they're, you know, if they have, if they have other tools that they've implemented that are just, you know, like a, a tool like we're using BlackKite, right? And there's BitSite and all that. If they're implementing that, that's be helpful as well. Uh, Mo, any thoughts on this? Yeah, I think so. Uh, the healthcare clients that uh, that I work with that leverage, um, you know, Armis, uh, it's exactly that. It's understanding the real-time risk and, you know, to Chris's uh, point there, uh, any deviations in behavior. And one of the things around medical devices or just the healthcare device ecosystem, I know we've been focusing a lot on devices, but, you know, to your point, Renee, as well, it's also user entities. It's also credentials. It's also phishing. It's, there needs to be a multiple, uh, multi-layered approach to protecting assets. Uh, server is not only based on, um, you know, endpoint security. It's not only network-based controls, but it's also uh, the users that are logging in right? In terms of how are they able to access it? I love the point that you mentioned about risk classification, because I think really doing that work up front when we're talking about things like automation, when we're talk- talking about even understanding the risk that devices pose, it's really important to do that work up front so that then we can map to it. I think a lot of times when I'm talking to security teams, one of the struggles they have is even understanding the risk, uh, whether it's servers, applications, uh, clinical devices and whatnot, because they're not entirely too sure in terms of their risk appetite, in terms of what are high severity risks that uh, devices, applications and so on can have, what are the different ways they're being used. So it's, it's a really evolving world when we're shifting away from the enterprise side of the house and I think collaboration as well uh, plays a huge role, right? So very impressive on that high trust and being able to understand uh, the rigor that goes around high trust on the for security teams, tasking them with securing medical devices. Um, you know, a CISSP uh, and other industry uh, certified professionals, they'd be great at securing servers, endpoints, things of that nature. And they can translate uh, a lot of that to, let's say, medical devices. But then biomed teams are really the ones that help understand this is how this device uh, communicates. When we're talking about architecture uh, diagrams previously, um, you know, just kind of uh, segueing a little bit back to the question, um, before it used to be what endpoints are accessing it. And that endpoint used to be a laptop accessing a, a server, which might be talking to a domain controller, database, and so on. But now that architecture uh, composition has evolved. Now I need to understand what are the different IOMT devices that are connecting to it. Right, because when if anything were to happen to that server, and that server is talking to infusion pumps, or it's talking to uh, nurse call systems, or what have you, that's direct impact to patient care. And we need to make sure that that communication, those devices, are on the appropriate network segments, and they've been secured and uh, restricted down to things like the network part. This is what the device should be doing. Any deviations, we need automated reporting. Why? Because this is a high-risk device. Why is that? Because it's dealing directly with patients or the fact that it's processing PHI. That all kind of comes together in a holistic uh, risk assessment of the entire environment. 
I just want to build on the, the risk part too, is I think one of the mistakes a lot of times is made in healthcare is we consider cybersecurity risk, we only consider it in the traditional sense of you know, asset value or this type of data. I think one of the things that increasingly needs to be done is to incorporate clinical context into it. I think not enough times do we consider the patient care aspects as part of the cybersecurity risk equation. Uh, take, for example, a, a two CT machines, one in an emergency room setting, one in an ambulatory setting. That CT in the ambulatory setting, if it goes down because of a ransomware attack or something else, I mean, it's inconvenient because you have to reschedule some patients, but it's not going to impact the larger mission of the organization. That same CT machine in emergency room setting, and if it goes down, now you can't triage stroke patients and certain other conditions, and that's a huge problem medically. And I think um, increasingly we need to partner more and more with the clinical side of the house and actually figure out what the patient safety risks are to a lot of these devices if they were to become impacted by a cyber attack. And I think that's a missing piece of the risk equation in a lot of um, healthcare security groups. And I think, I think to that point, the, the context of the devices, it's a matter of right now, they're large buckets of, you know, we're really good at the IT and then there's medical devices. But even within the medical devices, to your exact point, how is this device being used, right? Is it being used in the ER? What's the business criticality of these devices? And then on top of that, even when we're doing a passive vulnerability assessment, now it's not enough that the vulnerability in terms of exploitability metrics and the ratings that NIST has provided uh, are enough, in my opinion, right? Yes, it's a CVSS of nine. Yes, it's remotely executable. But now what's the clinical context of the device? So if you have this vulnerability across thousand devices, but now you know that this device is a medical device and it has utilization activity, it's directly touching a patient, that's probably going to be your highest risk device, especially if it's accessing the internet, especially if that vulnerability is being um, uh, exploited for ransomware and things of that nature. The fact that that clinical aspect of the device, it really elevates the overall risk it poses to the entire organization. And then of course, patient safety as well. Very good, Mo. Uh, Renee has catapulted us into the Ask a Co-Panelist section on her own, without <laughs> permission. Uh, but that's fine, Sorry. Renee. No, that's fine. Uh, Mo, did you have a question for one or both of your co-panelists? Yeah, I'll throw it out uh, for both Chris and Renee. A lot of times when I'm talking to executives, the conversation, just given the impact that COVID has had, it's now uh, a, a organization-wide focus in terms of increasing operational efficiency, in terms of uh, cutting costs, amalgamating tools, and things of that nature. How are you finding, uh, if you need to bring in new security technologies, or how are you justifying additional purchases during this time that I think healthcare is really uh, strapped for resources, whether it's capital, whether it's um, you know uh, human resources, and so on? I'd be curious to get your take on it. Renee, you want to jump in? You want to start? Sure. So, um, you know, I sit on the executive leadership team, so I'm, I'm fortunate in that respect, right? Um, and so I have not met any resistance, believe it or not. Um, because we sit on such a significant amount of confidential and, you know, protected data, um, I don't generally have an issue bringing in something new. You know, my best approach is I because I put the framework for security in place, I have a strategic plan I report regularly on it. We have training. We have automated training through tools. Um, they embrace the security. Uh, they embrace security very well. I have not had a problem to date. I mean, I don't, you know, I'm not asking for $10 million either because I'm not that big of a company. But um, I, you know, I present my business case and say, this is this is how we'll you'll do it. And, you know, and, and periodically I bring back examples of how our different tools are supporting 
So when I make my business case for something new, which I'm in the process of doing right now, um, I generally don't have much um, pushback. I might get asked questions. Um, I might have to find alternative funding methods, but for general purposes, I, I don't have an issue with it. Chris? We're pretty where I am. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't encountered too many issues with budget due to COVID because I think one of the interesting things about COVID is it really illustrated that healthcare systems that had heavily invested in technology were very able to scale and to adapt to meet the challenges of the, the pandemic. So I think in a lot of ways, it actually made it easier to um, encourage IT spending because it, for the first time, shared yeah. a lot of the value of um, what IT and technology could do to help the organization adapt to situations like that. Very good. Chris, do you have a question for one or both of your co-panelists? I guess since we're talking so much about devices, one of the things I was involved with the, with the Cloud Security Alliance a while back is we did a medical device incident response playbook where we took the idea of clinical context we were talking about and applied it to incident response because the idea was, is like, let's say a common incident response thing is to unplug a PC because it can stop something from spreading, which works for a PC, but you can't do that as a respirator. And that's kind of a crude example, but I'd be curious to know if um, there's any thoughts, I guess, on combining um, clinical context with incident response. Mo, let's start with you. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I think this is the water that's untreaded right now in a lot of different organizations. And whenever I'm talking uh, about medical device security or uh, to executives, I think that's the key that I drive is that collaboration uh, because it's important to understand even from the first place, what's the impact if I do unplug this device? So is that even a viable step if we're having incident response uh, procedures at this point, right? So if, if that medical device has been infected, if it's directly touching a patient, what's the lesser of two evils? Do I unplug it? Will there be any adverse impact versus uh, we might need to leave it online, but in real time, we're going to block all the network connections that that device has and kind of localize it. Uh, I think I think there's now starting to be a lot more conversations between security and clinical engineering teams in order to understand that. Um, and I think uh, there's a big push understanding that from a reactive state, it's very, very difficult to manage once a device uh, has been compromised. There's a huge push on the proactive part. And one of the, one of my favorite aspects to discuss is uh, something you mentioned earlier, Chris, are the MDS squared files, right? So those files that have information on privacy and security controls medical devices can take, a lot of times are only really available to biomed teams through support portals for vendors and what have you, really Getting that information, helping providers to security teams to be able to reduce the attack surface up front, I think that goes miles uh, ahead in terms of understanding what can be done on medical devices, helping reduce that, and then running playbooks against it. Uh, Renee, your thoughts? Uh, yeah, I, you know, I mean, I can mirror most of what um, has been said already, but, um, you know, we do have an incident response plan, right? And so um, we do exercise it, um, you know, on a regular basis. However, you know, as we started off in the beginning of the conversation, we were talking about the universe of things that happen or devices that might connect. And I think that, um, you know, we often do things, and maybe my colleagues can comment on this too, you know, we, we make these documents, we make these procedures and, and all that, and then are they living and breathing documents, mm -hmm. right? Are we, are we, are we updating them to contemplate the, you know, the future or the universe or, or whatever, so that when we have a situation like was just described, um, that we don't find out three days later and meanwhile it, it, everything's gone gone south, right? So we try to be proactive in that, and, and part of that proactiveness is having that plan, but also anticipation and making sure that it stays regularly um, evaluated and, and modified accordingly. All right, we're just about time for some final thoughts. Um, and uh, maybe I'll just give everyone a specific little 
shading of a question. Um, Chris, you've done Zero Trust twice. I don't know if you're done with it the second time where you are now, but I don't know if anyone has ever done with it. People describe it as a journey, and I don't know if you ever like cross the finish line and and put up the mission accomplished sign. But um, I think a lot of people get intimidated by it. Is my guess from from talking to folks, and um, maybe that scares them from getting started. But you sound like you you would be a big proponent for this zero trust approach. I definitely am. I think the key there is it's a journey. You're not going to flip a switch and one day have zero trust. And if you try to do it that way, you're going to break a lot of stuff. <laughs> it's about breaking your environment up into manageable chunks and deploying it over time. And it might be something you make increasingly fine-grained over time. You know, Maybe you make some coarse cuts first and then begin to make it finer. Mm-hmm. But it's really about um, finding a way to divide the environment up into manageable pieces and not to try to do it all at once. I think trying to do it all at once is a recipe for disaster. And it's um, so it really is the the journey, as you say, and not the um, just an end goal that you can just flip a switch on and arrive at. And have the party where everyone meets uh, for the zero trust is finished party. I guess that maybe isn't going to happen. Renee, um, Mo loved your uh, talk about risk classification. You want to give us any more on that before we let you go? Um, no, I just, you know, I think that um, that is an important piece of it because it plays into so many things that we've been talking about today, like, you know, alert fatigue, right? You know, like w- w- how many alerts are people going to get on and different things, but also it creates the opportunity for you. It, it, it's probably a big step as you do your governance, as you do your strategy around security, like what is the risk and doing those appropriate risk assessments so that you can build that, it, it, build that into the culture, build that into the plan. Um, build it into, you know, your alerts, whatever, your technology. Um, it, it is really key to understanding um, how you want to manage. Um, and, and again, not all things are the same risk, right? And so you have to have that so you can respond effectively. Um, and that's just a, an ongoing process that you have to be constantly aware of. Very good. And Mo, um, so you worked in a health system or a hospital, correct? Yes, sir, I did. So you put some time in the trenches, so you know what of you speak when mm-hmm. you talk about this stuff. Tell us a little bit more. Tell me a little bit more about your time in the trenches. Yeah, absolutely. I think it was, uh, I, I was fortunate in the sense that I got to see a whole bunch of different aspects of growing and implementing a security program. Um I think there's definitely a difference in the way healthcare environments are handled versus enterprise uh, uh, environments. Uh, when you're looking at things like ransomware attack, it's, you know, to Chris's point, it's there's certain steps that you can take, certain steps that you got to kind of think twice about before you do take. Uh, and I think it really puts an additional lens on cybersecurity when you're taking into account context and clinical aspects of uh, devices and, you know, the uptime of services in a hospital. It's really... Uh, interesting to see that, you know, downtime procedures for hospitals result in, hey, we got to revert back to paper charts. We got to do what's necessary in order to be able to maintain the delivery of services. It's not that we're just shutting down a business and we'll be back up in eight hours or when we're recovered. It is there needs to be continuity planning. So when we're doing cybersecurity, keeping that in mind, but also baking that into any type of downtime procedures, uh, when we're bringing in new innovative technologies, well, hey, we still got to maintain the other side of the house. So if there is this great innovative technology and we're reliant on it, we can't let go of some previous processes, no matter how, how much we'd like to move away from paper. Excellent webinar, excellent discussion, lots of incredible stuff in there and good takeaways for people. Regarding continuing education, you can use the final slide in this deck. You'll get an email recording when the on-demand version 
of this webinar is ready for viewing. If you want to sponsor an event with us, you can reach out to Nancy Wilcox from our team, and you can go to our website to register for upcoming panels. With that, I want to thank our tremendous panel, Renee Broadbent, Chris Friends, and Mo Wakis, and I want to thank Armis for making this possible and sponsoring, and I want to thank you for attending. And with that, everybody have a wonderful day. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye.